My name is Kevin Hines. I jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. I believed that I had to die, but I lived. Today, I travel the world with my lovely wife, Margaret, sharing stories of people who have triumphed over incredible adversity. Now, we help people be here tomorrow. Welcome to the Hindsights Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, family and friends, welcome to another episode. Today we are here with an amazing young man, a fellow advocate of a man after my own heart, the chief executive officer of Laguna Treatment Hospital in Southern California, and an all-around great guy and human being. Marlon Rollins, how are you, sir? Hey, I am blessed, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate you uh, sharing your voice and definitely great to connect with you, man. Long time coming. Long time coming. It's, it's, it's about time we did this. Right. I'm really excited. Well, let's get right into it. And by the way, thank you for sending me your 10 milestones. That's how I like to do my podcast, where I get 10 milestones from the guests, so I know where, they, where they've been, where they're going, where, they, where they're coming from. Yep. We'll start right at the top. You were adopted by a spiritual leader in 1996. Yep. Can you tell me about that experience, and can you tell me why you had to be adopted by a spiritual leader as opposed to your own biological family? I'm adopted as well, so. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really critical to kind of set the stage of what put me on this specific path, specific mission. And I think, you know, I was raised with my dad left our home when I was a small child around third grade or something like that. It was my sister and myself. We grew up together. So a little small town in Indiana. I was born in Seattle, Washington, moved out to Indiana. And anyways, it was my single mom and my dad wasn't around and we kind of went through the ropes. And as you're a young man, you kind of try to figure out your own way, if you will. You're trying to figure out who you are as a man, trying to come up with your identity, not sure exactly what direction you're going. And as typical kind of teenager, you just kind of come up with your own ideas. But I didn't really have a, a really good male mentor taking me through some really, I think, important milestones as a young person. And I went to a lot of different churches in the city that I was growing up in at the time. And I went to this particular church and they had this organization that was called Commission of African-American Men. And it really impressed upon me that there were other black males there that were professionals. And I really looked up to them. I think I was kind of hungry for kind of that positive male figure. And the pastor of the church at the time, he was a graduate of a HBCU, which is a historically black college university, and done a lot of civil rights work before and had kind of got a fraternity of men together to start this ministry. And I really looked up to them. He didn't have any other children at the time. And my grandmother was an organist at, the, at that point, and that's how I showed up. So he kind of took me under his wing. And I think for anybody that is trying to grow and develop, you need somebody that can help coach you spiritually, kind of, kind of helps you educate as opposed to going through life and just trying to figure it out on your own. So for me, that relationship with my pastor, Pastor Richard Miller, was a pivotal point for me because it gave me structure as opposed to me just kind of doing it on my own. So... Mm -hmm. It was a really key milestone for me because it gave me some accountability and it gave me structure and it gave me a sense that I was cared for by someone with integrity. Mm -hmm. And that kind of started for me and I was part of something that was meaningful and it helped shape who I was and where I was trying to go at that particular time. So looking back on, it, I see how important it is. So that was kind of like the first real milestone, I'd say, as far as kind of putting me on this trajectory that we'll talk through today about. Amazing. And would you say, would you say in a nutshell, he, he shaped and changed your life forever? Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And it wasn't an easy thing. And I think anytime you do that, it, when you have somebody who comes in from the outside and says, hey, you know, I'm going to take you under my wing, he definitely took that on in spite of my kind of rebelliousness and my independent nature because of, you know, I'm a smart kid, so I'm smart, smarter than this. But he was patient with me and uh, he really helped give me some guidance. So it was definitely needed, but it wasn't always welcomed when you're a teenager at the same time, right? Because they want to make you do right and this, that, and the other. And I was like, okay, okay, I'm going to believe this and keep trying to do the right thing because I knew he had my best interest at heart. Sometimes we have to just surrender to it and let people be there for us and let them show up in ways we don't expect them to. And maybe we're not ready for them to show up in that way. Yep. But over, over, over the course of our lives, we realize how much that had an impact on the rest of our existence. That's, yes. Well, thank God for Pastor Richard Miller. Absolutely. Thank you. So you talk about in 1998, you, you surrendered to purpose. Yeah. You, you started college. You realize, you know, the career you were pursuing was not going the way you wanted it to go. It was not right. God-led, as you said. And you prayed and asked God to show you what your purpose was. And you would commit to that purpose if you could see what it was, if you could envision it, if he could show you a sign. And you said that it was revealed to you to study psychology. Tell me how it was revealed to you and how you knew this was going to be your path. No, that, that's no, thank you. So what happened was, so I was at, it got into ministry. I was, I started college. I was kind of on, like I said, this plan. I wanted to be in the medical profession. I knew, knew that. And I wanted, and I was good at art, but I had this by design idea of what I wanted to be to become, you know, I was changing my trajectory of kind of being poor to, okay, and now I'm going to go to school and kind of figure out how to be a, a doctor or a surgeon. And I put together kind of this idea that this is what I wanted to do. But once I got into the ministry and was under kind of this mentorship in the church, I went to IU Bloomington in Indiana, and I started a pre-medical program, pre-medicine. But I realized as I was going on this spiritual journey at that age too, it really didn't, I recognized that God, this is not really your plan for me. It's really something that I thought seemed like it was a good idea. And if I'm really serious about my faith, and I'm really serious about committing my life to, to God and, and what he has for me, if I believe in that purpose, then he should have something for me to do beyond me knowing what it is. Hmm. So I remember being in my dorm, praying all night, like, Lord, show me. I was like, this doesn't seem like it's, it's working out. I was doing okay in school, but it just wasn't fulfilling. Like it just didn't miss. And I said, I want to make sure. I even had prayed to the point. I said, God, even if you have me drop out of school, I'll do what you call me to do. Maybe I need to go to the Peace Corps. Maybe I need to just, God, show me what it is that I can do before I get too long on my own journey. Show me what it is that you would have me to do. So I remember praying that prayer and just quietly listening, nothing, nothing. The next morning, my pastor calls me up and he's like, God showed me a dream. And I said, okay, what's in this dream? And my, my pastor, he had a, has a prophetic ministry. So he had my attention because I hadn't told him that I had prayed this prayer. He didn't know that I was going through this kind of toiling in myself. I just, he just called me the next morning before I went off the class. And he said, the Lord showed me that you're supposed to go and get a PhD in counseling psychology. That's what you're supposed to agree. And you're going to do some writings and you're going to help a lot of people. And I said, okay. And, you know, he just told me that you're going to be in a position to help lead and help a lot of people. And he said, an end is going to be better than the beginning. So wherever you started from, it's going to get better. But he said, counseling psychology. And I was a bit perplexed because I had never heard of counseling psychology. I heard of psychology, but I hadn't really thought about it as necessarily a career. So I went about calling the, the university and saying, you know, how do I get the counseling psychology? And I found out that they didn't have a, a psychology, counseling psychology program. So I ended up searching I changed my major to psychology. I talked to some other people who were in the field and, and, they, and I said, well, what am I supposed to major in now? It's kind of like that kind of question when you go to school, like, what am I supposed to study? 
and said, well, you can kind of study what is, right? I said, well, psychology, so it just makes sense. So I, I, I ended up going, transferring to another school. I went to Ball State University, and they had like a top 10 psychology, counseling psychology program in the United States. So I said, well, if, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it the best I possibly can. So that's how it happened. And I just decided at that point, I, I totally took a leap of faith and said, God, I believe that that was the answer to my prayer. And at that point, 18, 19 years old, I'm going to switch my career trajectory and I'm going to pursue this career in counseling psychology. And wow. that's what I did. Wow. And you got your doctorate. Uh-huh. And then at, at 21 years old, in the year 2000, you are officially ordained a minister in the Church of God in Christ. Yeah. And that was clearly a significant validation of your calling as a, as a leader, a preacher yep. of your community, someone who helps other people. Like you said, your pastor told you he right. saw a path for you saying you're going to go and help a lot of people. And here is this another, here's another opportunity. You've got your psych degree, but here's your, another opportunity to do that amongst a lot of groups of people that need the, the good word. So can yeah. you tell me about being ordained as a minister and some of your experiences there? Yeah, it was, you know, it, it, anything you take the leap of faith like that, there's always this kind of natural kind of uncertainty. Like you question yourself, like, am I really ready to do this? But mm-hmm. I kept going back to purpose and faith and trusting God. Like if I really, really trust God for this, and I really believe in what this, in my calling, because it, it just started to fit. Like all of a sudden, like when I started in school, all of a sudden, everything that I was looking for, it felt like God had been watching over me and putting people and things in, in order for me just to make those decisions. I, and I had to decide every time, am I going to trust God right now? Am I going to trust God for this right now? So I got ordained like right before I finished my bachelor's program. And it was really well. I was doing incredibly well. It, like God gave me this incredible favor at the university. And I did all my degrees there. And people always question. I was like, well, my church was also in the local community. So I would literally drive to church and, and go every Sunday service until I moved there. And then we were doing services every Sunday. So I was really serious in, in studying the word of God, understanding, because I wanted to have this deeper relationship really with God. And I realized that for me, the Bible helped me understand who he was. Hmm. And it was studying the Bible and then other bishops who had been doing pastoral work in the community for 50, 60 plus years, when they walk up to you and they see that you're serious and they see the same kind of anointing on you and they say like, this guy might have something, they'll, you know, they'll tell me to straighten up and they'll give me all the counsel. But I had to stand before the bishop's board and, you know, give testimony about my series. I had to be faithful to the church. I had to have all these written commitments. I had to be studied and, and so on. But it was, it was common for me to study, but it said the ordination was a big deal because I was 21. And the typical 21-year-old was, 21 means I get to go party, I get to go drink. And it was none of that. It was like... Laser focused. I was laser focused and it was discipline. And I, it, it didn't mean that I didn't want to, but it was like, this is more important for me right now. And if I can build this foundation, then I just believed that somehow that God was going to change my circumstance. And I didn't have to be this you know, kind of poor kid that was kind of looking for a father figure, looking for an identity, if you will, Mm. in a world that was telling me all kinds of mixed messages about what I needed to be and what it meant to be a man or a black man or or whatever it was. Mm. This really shaped me. And then I was affirmed through this church who had the spiritual, really integrity, dignity, you know, walking upright, discipline, you know, and it gave me structure. It was, it was like a spiritual military. I mean, in that regard, because I was serious about that. And I had to put all of the other things that I was trying to do, or I thought that I wanted to do kind of aside, but it paid off. And I believe that, you know, if I just patience and I endure and, and I learn this, then I can 
I can be what God created me to be. And that was kind of the, the important message that I tried to repeat in my head. And, and, and then with the brotherhood that was around me, really trying to encourage me on that way. Helping a lot of people along the way, no doubt. That's fantastic. And, and, and we move forward into your story and we see that in 2010, at 31 years old, you receive your PhD in educational psychology, an amazing step in purpose to set out in, faith, in your faith. You're called to crisis services in 2011. You obtain your PhD, of course. That was an amazing achievement. And you weren't sure exactly what to go on next. What was the next plan or point in your work, your workplace or your workforce? Yep. And your pastor, he started to fall ill, as I understand it. Right. So you took a job at a local community mental health center working the crisis department. Yep. What was that like? And, and how did your pastor falling ill affect you? Yeah, it was, a, it was a, definitely a trying time because I had thought that I had done... By the time I got the doctorate degree, I was like, okay, I made it. And even though it wasn't counseling psychology, I still had a specialty. It was educational psychology. And I thought, well, maybe somehow I was off a little bit, but it was something I went back to prayer about. I said, well, God, now that I've finished this, now that I've accomplished this goal and I have this PhD that you said that I would be able to achieve 10 years ago, now what's next? And all of a sudden, it became not about me. It became about my, my dad, uh, my pastor dad, as I call him. He was falling sick. And I was like, well, I can't really leave and go on and take this next opportunity I needed to find something local. So I took a job working in crisis services at the local hospital. I had been working in a school setting, working with kids who were gifted kids, but still struggling with like self-harm and suicidality, really high achieving kids. But I needed to take that next step, but I couldn't really leave and go anywhere because my dad, now he was in trouble. He was, I found out he was in, in kidney failure. So I just took a local job at the hospital and I was working with the community mental health center, going to see people in the emergency room coming in. They were, you know, overdosed or, you know, self-harm. They were behavioral health. I was trying to get them hospitalized, but it allowed me to get an up-close experience about what, what the gaps were with mental health in the community. And I'd go to the hospital bedside and see people, but, you know, I had been to the hospital side to, to pray for people. Now I was assessing them to try to find out how to get them help. Wow. So here I was, you know, watching out for my dad and working in crisis services. And then I took another job to move out of the Muncie, Indiana to go to Indianapolis, Indiana and work with another large healthcare system because I thought if I could move him with me, because now he was staying with me, I can get him connected to better healthcare because we were kind of in a small town and we really couldn't get good kidney dialysis treatment. So I started a new job as a director over a crisis department, a call center. We did telehealth services out of our main hub. And now I was overseeing a whole department of people, plus taking care of my dad uh, while trying to get him back on a track for health because his, his health continued to kind of fragment. He had a lot of emergency situations. He was in a hospital for sometimes months at a time. A couple of times he coded. He had several strokes. I mean, it was just, I was like, here I'm watching my dad's life kind of like start to crumble apart where I thought, you know, I had finally made it, if you will, but I had to stop and focus on on him. And at the same time, I was like taking on this big opportunity for in behavior health and hospital systems. So it gave me this really up close personal experience of what was going on with healthcare. And what was really, really important about the job that I took right after I finished my doctorate degree, I was also working in a hospital with my sister, my oldest sister, who was two, she was a nurse and she worked on the same unit where I would go you know, after the emergency room, I would go check on her and she would be seeing her patients. And her and I really bonded again because we got to work in the same space. And she's like, oh, this is my brother, Dr. Rollins. And she yeah. introduced me to all of her, you know, her teammates. And, you know, it was just really cool because she also had a home healthcare business too. So she was a, like the nurse of nurse. She would have the nursing license plate. And anyways, it helped us kind of join forces. And we were always talking about, yeah, one day I'm going to be the doctor and therapist and you can be the nurse. 
and we're going to team up together and we're going to help all these people. And we used to talk about that during her shifts. And we talked about, you know, she started coming to church. We started to have this really bond. She actually took care of my dad, my pastor dad, even though it wasn't her dad. She was like, that's your dad. That's my dad too. I'm going to help him out. He's struggling. She became his home healthcare nurse, right? So she was helping him. And we were all trying to come together to say, okay, let's, let's, let's heal this man who's been really instrumental in my life. And he's a big part of a lot of people's lives in the community. And yeah, so that, that's what kind of put me up front and close of, okay, now this became the new calling, if you will. Now I had this by design, this doctorate degree begin to work for me because now being licensed as a therapist, having a PhD, it opened up these doors for opportunities in, in healthcare that I didn't have before. And then it just put me in a place where I was now working with my sister who you know, I love, she's my one and only sister. And she was kind of a part of this too. And I thought it was really a nice moment in that regard, in regards to the connectivity, but it was scary because his health was hanging in the balance at the same time. And as this is all going on, you find out in 2013 that your biological father has passed away. Right. And the way he was found is, is pretty tragic, if you will, you know, find in an abandoned house in Oregon at 74 years old, but you had not seen him since you were about seven, right. although you did, you did have some conversations on the phone with him in 2010. How did this milestone in your life impact you? In what way? And, and can you tie it to your relationship with your, your pastor dad? Yeah. No, it was important that it, it's interesting when you grow up and your dad's not around, you kind of start getting used to the idea, well, he's not around anymore. So you start trying to figure out how to live without a dad. And then I had this spiritual father who came in who kind of filled that void for me, but I still had that kind of craving for my, my real dad, not really knowing, because you know that you're made up of half of his DNA, but who is this man? Because it's part of who you are. Yeah. So before I finished my doctorate, you know, I talked to him a few times. He had been struggling in the community. He was a pretty accomplished guy, I learned. He was, a, he was this artist. His name was Henry Clifford Rollins Jr. He was a Bay Area artist. He had erected these sculptures in Oakland, California. And in Washington, he actually studied art in Italy and he was kind of phenomenal to me, but I didn't know who he was. I just thought he was like this, this strange entity. So I only had ideas of it. So I did get to talk to him and he was like, you're my last son. And I said, you have any other kids? He's like, nope, I, you know, I, you're my, my last son. And he was really proud of me. We talked a little by the phone. He was a bit of a strange person because he was an artistic man, kind of used to run around with like the Jimi Hendrix types and he was a musician. So it's kind of like the true entitled, like Papa was a Rolling Stone. And I got in touch with him. So I thought, well, wow, maybe one point I'll actually get to meet the guy. And just to face to face, have a conversation because he's, I've never seen this man since I was a small child. And in 2013, I got a call from my half sister. I have a half sister, I have two half siblings, two half sisters and a half brother who were, we were not raised around. Now, mind you, my dad was, you know, in his late seventies now, and I'm like a you know, I'm like the baby of babies. So I reach out to the guy and I find my sister calls me. She's like, he's dead. He was found dead in this house in Oregon, which used to be, was his aunt's house. He was kind of despondent and he was found there. Just kind of the description was he was emaciated. Like he died like a homeless man, but he was a graduate of, gosh, he had his master's degree from university of Washington, but I just never knew the guy. And at that moment I was like, okay, if I'm going to lose my dad, I'm not going to lose another one. My pastor dad was in trouble and it kind of underscored to me like, what can I do? I just lost my dad who I didn't get to know and I thought I would get to know. And I remember telling my sister the same thing, hey, our dad is dead. And I remember her, she was just crushed. Like, 
you think about kind of like the daddy's little girl. She was a little older than me, but she kind of had this hope. I felt it like she was one day going to be reunited with her dad. And it was devastating to her. And she was really torn up about it. And I said, you know what? Well, we got this one dad. Let's see if we can help him along the way. But that was, it gave me this laser focus of like, okay, now what else can I do here? But it impacted me in a, in a way that I wasn't, I wasn't ready for because you never, even though I wasn't close to him, I was like, now my dad is gone, gone. Mm. Like, you know, you always have that back and like, maybe, maybe one day I'll get to meet him. But now he was gone, gone. And that definitely, that impact. And I had never lost anybody before. That was the other thing. I, I had never had anybody die in my family, immediate family at all. And now that my dad is gone and my, my pastor dad was holding on by a thread. Your pastor dad's holding on by a thread, desperately needs a new kindy. And what did you fi find out and how did you end up being a part of saving his life? Yeah. So this was that same year. I was like, okay, you know, I had always, I had learned that, you know, go to God when you're in kind of a crisis. And so I went to the Lord and I just began to pray. And just something in my spirit said, donate him a kidney. And I was like, okay, that seems like pretty clear. How do you do that? Right. So I started to research like what is kidney donation and all this other kind of stuff. And I remember telling my, my pastor that and he kind of was laughed it off. He was like, whatever, you know, he said, and I announced it in church and everybody was like, wow, okay. But people weren't really on board with it. But I said, well, I know the Lord told me to do it. So I guess, you know, and just lo and behold, find out, I go in and test it, I'm a match. And the chances of a match like that is like one in like a hundred million, okay? So here I am praying, hearing from God saying, you know, donate a kidney. I'm kind of novice to the idea of kidney donation. But once I looked at it, I realized like, wow, this is, this is very, all of a sudden it was like, now I, now I started to get it. Now it wasn't just this man helping me. It was me also now helping him and giving him a second chance on life. And so we started with the process. I mean, it was, it wasn't easy, but it's tremendous. And he's doing, he's alive today. So he's like seven years now with this kidney transplant. We did it in July of 2013. So wow. like just, you know, my dad dies in February and then July, you know, I'm exchanging organs with the guy. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty phenomenal and definitely life changing. And so I took about six weeks of recovery, you know, again, Mind you, I'm like full-time job, everything's going on. But, the, you know, my whole team at the hospital, they knew my situation and the people that I was working with, my boss, the hospital, everybody got behind it and was like, go Marlon and, you know, do what you got to do. Take care of your family. They came and they fed me when I was in recovery. My team held it down. It, it was really incredible. And, but again, it was one of those big leaps of faith that you just, you know, it just doesn't come, come across easy. You know what I'm saying? It just doesn't happen just every day. In hearing this story, your, your, your words to God's ears, it's clear that you, have a, you had a lot of leaps of faith, that you had to trust that things would go the way they were hopefully supposed to. But then you come up against probably one of the hardest situations you've ever experienced in your entire life until I imagine today. Your sister, Amber Rose Rollins, in December of 2013, passes away by suicide from lethal emotional pain. Yeah. Can you... You know, I know it's a tough topic, but can you break down what happened and how that would affect the rest of your life? No, oh, thanks, Kevin. So, and I appreciate you recognizing it. And I've talked about it before, so I, I try to, it's different every time. So it's one of those things that is very painful. I carry it with me all the time, but I also recognize that I felt like I had a responsibility to talk about it more. 
So what happened in, in 2013, that particular year when I had the death of my father, my sister was also going through like a really tough, she wanted to separate from her relationship with her former husband at the time. And she's got one daughter who was 14 years old, kind of the love of her life from a different father. And she's got her own home healthcare business. And then around in April, I get a call from my sister and she's like in you know, rapid speech and kind of talking delusional. She thinks some paranoid, like the devil's coming after with her. And now mind you, I'm over a direct, I'm a director over crisis services. So I'm overseeing inpatient services in a hospital. So I get her into treatment and this is in April. So I admit her into the hospital that, that I had oversight in and to the unit. I oversaw the clinical program as well with the social workers and whatnot, but I admitted her into the facility got her treatment. She was there for like 10 days. When she came in, she ended up testing positive for an opiate. And if you're a nurse and you test positive for a substance, then you have to report yourself to the state. And so she was beside herself with that. She found that her ex-husband at the time or the person that she was divorcing had already reported to her to the state. And so she was like devastated. She went ballistic. She was angry. She was in a lot of emotional pain already behind the loss of our father. And now she was looking at not having a job anymore or not having her nurse's license. So, so she made a point once she got through that 10 days of very difficult treatment. It was her first psych hospitalization. And it was kind of like the label of now you have a mental health diagnosis on top of you and you have as a nurse which is devastating for a lot yeah. of nurses and and, and and people in the clinical field because they're looked at to be on top of everything and, and, right. and strong and and unwilling to bend or break right and when they do go through these kind of mental health challenges often they face a lot of stigma and discrimination yeah. within their own field so which we don't always exactly. talk about exactly exactly so she felt that sense of shame i think kind of cascade upon her and she was such a proud nurse. Like I said, she had the license plate. She had, you know, her whole career. She was, she had the calling of a nurse and she went after it with everything she had. And that's why, you know, she used to work night shift too. So she kind of worked a lot of hours and which I think contributed to a lot of her health struggles as well. But, you know, she came out and she wasn't able to, the sad thing is that she couldn't be there for the kidney transplant when it happened in July. So she's admitted in April. We had the surgery in July, but her life is so upside down that she can't even, at that point, really be there for, to support me as a brother, which was our plan. She was going to be the nurse to take care of me. So even though it was this great event that I could help my dad, my sister was sick and in pain. And I couldn't be, I think that that's the hardest part for me as a brother, even though I knew I helped my sister, there was this guilt of not being able to do everything I could for her. But I had to realize that I had done everything that I could do for her at that time. So, but she was still struggling. And then come at the end of the year, kidney transplants done. I see her on Christmas day. She embraces me. She's like, Marlon, I love you. I'm so sorry. We sit down, we have this conversation. We're reminiscing about, you know, life and growing up and, you know, little kid jokes that we used to tell. And then five days later, I get a call from my mom saying Amber's hurt herself. And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like hurt herself and she's crying and she's about an hour away from me. So I'm like, I got this. I got this. I'm going to, you know, I'm like back in crisis Superman mode again. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to go get my sister. We'll figure this out. I knew she got admitted to the same emergency room that I used to work at when I lived in that same city. So I called them. I said, Hey, this is Dr. Rollins. You know, I need to know status of, you know, Amber Rollins, blah, blah, blah. And they weren't giving me any information. And I called back in and I just kind of insisted. And they said, Oh, your sister shot herself. And I'm like, okay, this, this is real serious. So I'm still on my way. I'm like, okay, I'm going. I told my boss, I said, I got to go. My sister hurt herself. Now, mind you, my boss, 
was over the psych hospital at the time. So she knew my sister. She saw her in treatment. You know, it wasn't like this was a stranger to anybody. So I'm like on the road. And while I'm in route, the coroner calls me and like, your sister, what do you want to do? He said, what do you want to do with Biden? I was like, whoa, what are you, what are you talking about? Uh. So it went from kind of like, I'm going to go rescue again to like, okay, wait a minute. Now everything stops. And now, mind you, the, the, the hard thing, you know, one, I'm like thinking about all the devastation. My niece, like, where is she? This is her daughter. She's 14 years old. You know, her, her mom is gone now. My mom is shaking, man. I'm calling the hospital. I hear my mom screaming in the background. I'm like, okay. And, and I got to come in and be kind of the pastor again to and brother. And I'm like, okay, Lord, this is a lot. This is a lot. This is a lot right now. So I don't, everything just stopped at that moment. And I just remember like, okay, now, now what am I going to do? You know, and I, I didn't, we, you know, we wanted to deny that, it, you know, it was something else or whatever, but, you know, she was depressed. And my mom said, hey, what did what'd you do the last time you were feeling this way? She said, well, I called my brother. Well, she didn't call me that time. So I was like, she didn't call me this time. What happened? What, what happened that this time it didn't, it didn't catch? And if she had just called me or just done something a little different in that very last minute, I still have my sister today. And I know I looked back at her. She was in, she was getting treatment. She was, I, but I looked at her notes and treatment. And it was like, I feel so weak. I feel like I'm out of control. I can't beat this addiction. I mean, she felt helpless and she was trying to apply to become, get her nursing license back. And she was being denied her, her mental health benefits and disability. And she had no job at that point. And she was in, depressed. You know, she was down in that lull of like, she had fought everything that she possibly could and was suffering with a lot of pain and humiliation. And I never forget when I first saw on Christmas, when I gave her that hug, I was like, she just wasn't okay. But I just said, Hey, I'm here for you. And, but that changed the trajectory significantly. And then my niece, like trying to comfort her 14 year old and she, my sister loved her daughter. So it, you know, a lot of people are like, well, wouldn't she stay for her daughter or whatever? Like, like, you don't understand. She was so depressed. She thought it was better for her not to be there at that moment, which was wrong. But she somehow believed that that, was the answer to her pain of her losing her father, losing her job, losing the things that she had worked for. And then maybe, huh? Her identity. Her identity, like who she was. It was gone as as she saw it. Yeah. You know, being, not being a nurse, not being a good mother anymore. Now, now they call you, you know, you have bipolar disorder or whatever it is, or you have an addiction. And I think the, the shame she felt of that too was painful and it just shouldn't be. And that's the thing that I realized this shouldn't be. And my job was to, as I saw it, was to not allow people to die. And mind you, my job was crisis director. So my thought, my job was to not have this happen. But here, my, it happened to my sister. Yeah. But here's the thing that's important to me too. And it is that if I had not been in the field of counseling psychology or psychology, I would have not had the internal understanding of diagnoses, psych hospitalizations to realize there were so many gaps in healthcare and also to be able to speak to myself about what needed to happen. So in some ways it protected me. I felt not, I'm somebody that I don't believe God, suicide is not in God's will for anybody ever, but I believe in some, some way God was preparing me for it because I needed to, I think about the people that I, I've talked to people who've lost loved ones to suicide or attempt survivors. And sometimes I couldn't always understand it, but I, I remember the pain. I remember the grief of losing somebody and helping them work through that. And I had to like now heal myself, right? And then I remember going to like another year, an out of darkness walk, which is, you know, as you know about supporting people who've lost people to suicide, lost survivors. And somebody stood up on stage and said, hey, whatever, it's not your fault. 
somebody stood up on the stage and said, it's not your fault. And like said it several times. And I was like, that was the thing that I needed to hear. That hit me. Like, yeah, I needed, somebody needed to tell me that it wasn't my fault Yeah, to help me move through it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Marlon, this has been an amazing conversation. Some ups, some downs, some real heartache and real pain, but real positivity too, and real light and real hope. Yeah. And I want to let you be the last word. I want to know what you think are cracked, not broken America's failed mental health system needs to turn things around for mental health in America specifically. I know that's a vast and, and giant right. question that needs a great deal of hours to figure out. <laughs> in your opinion, and you know, 10 think tanks just to solve the crisis, but in your opinion, what are some of the small steps we can take as a nation to start healing our mental health system? That's a huge question. You're absolutely right. And, I, and I'll give you the tip because I know we're short on time. We'll have to do a to be continued or something like that. But the first and foremost is we've got to get comfortable with having the conversation about addiction and mental health. We've got to stop stigmatizing it. People are dying every day by suicide and people suffering in darkness with addictions and because they feel ashamed about it. And we have not, we'll talk about it when we lose somebody, but we don't talk about how to get help and we don't normalize it enough to let people know that it's okay to ask for help and it's okay to have a brain disease, which includes both addiction and behavior. We don't, we've got to make it okay socially. We've got to change the conversation if we're going to change our culture. Anything that we do, you know, I, I try to compare it to like HIV AIDS. We've got to talk about these diseases differently for us to begin to do something about, about it differently. When people died of cancer, we had to talk about living with cancer and, and what it meant to be a cancer survivor. We got to talk the same way about addiction and recovery, and we got to talk about it openly. That's like step one. And then we've got to make it easy, give people easier access to healthcare resources. And it needs to be right in their community. It needs to be right in the hospital system, right in their churches, so that you can get the help that you need, right, to get the support that you need without being shamed. And it's got to be, it's easier to get access to a lethal mean than it is to get access to help. And that's a big challenge, trying to get treatment for drug addiction, which is where I work in the space that I primarily work in now. We've got to make it easier for people to get, it's got to be easier than, than COVID testing, for God's sake. <laughs> you know, you've got to be able to just go in and get that help and not, and not be afraid or feel like you're going to be made ashamed of. That's the number one thing. We've got to make it easy for people. We, that means we've got to invest money into it and we've got to research it and we've got to have good medicine and providers. We've got to provide training for our mental health professionals around suicide risk, around mental health, understanding behavioral health issues, not calling people the crazy and all these other labels. We've got to not be non-judgmental as a profession and as a healthcare industry, it's got to be equal. And so when I talk about equal, equal rights and we've got to have equal rights and fair treatment for people with, with behavioral health and addiction services. I mean, and that's, it starts with our, how we talk about it. And then you're talking about public policy and really investing in it so we can truly save lives because we lose some really good people every day because of the shame and it's hard for them to get help, and we've got to make it easy. Dr. Marlon Rollins, thank you very much for your time today. Ladies and gentlemen, family and friends, if you want to follow us, follow me at, at Kevin Hines Story on Instagram, Twitter, yes. and Facebook. Marlon, how do they follow you? Oh, you follow me on Instagram, at Rollins Marlin, same handle on Twitter, is Rollins Marlin. So, yeah, look me up. You can Google me. But, yeah, Instagram, Twitter, Rollins Marlin. We're lucky to be here. We're blessed to exist. You're a blessing to all of us in the work that we do. I'm so grateful for it. I'm so grateful for the path we walked to
to make you the man you are today and the great work you're doing. So thank you. Keep it up and never stop trying to help save lives. Friends, be here tomorrow. And every single day after that, you are valued, you are loved, you are worthy, and you matter. And if nobody else says it today, we love you, but we want you to stay. That's it, guys. Take care. Be well. And be here tomorrow. Take care, man. Right on, Kevin. Margaret and I love sharing stories of people who have triumphed over incredible adversity. For more content and inspiration, go to kevinhindstory.com or visit us on all social medias at Kevin Hines Story or on youtube.com slash Kevin Hines.